Good morning. I'll be reading from Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 41. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. This is the word of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, the title of my sermon is Life at the Back of the Line. Um, have you ever been at the back of the line? I have. Um, my last name is Whitaker. W, right? <laughs> so growing up, every time the alphabet was called in terms of names, the class roll, I was down there at the end. Every time the teacher lined us up, she went A to Z, and I was at the very back. And then one year, the most delightful thing happened. This girl came to our class whose last name was Zimmerman. Said, yes, it's over. I'm not at the back of the line anymore. As a matter of fact, um, the back of the line is not necessarily something you seek out, right? Except maybe sometimes. Maybe sometimes you seek out the back of the line because you want to be unnoticed and you just kind of want to be invisible. I, I know that feeling. Sometimes you seek out the back of the line like me if you're going to run in a half marathon. I mean, maybe you don't know what that's like. I'm going to run a half marathon next Saturday, so just watch me. I'm going to walk up here on Sunday and preach without a limp. No, I, I might limp, but no matter. It, it's in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm going to drive down there on Friday and run on Saturday and come back. And when you sign up for a half marathon or a marathon, you actually sign up in a corral, right? That means like corral A, B, C, or on down the line. And of course, Corral A is the fastest people. You're supposed to know basically how much time it's going to take you to run the race, so you sign up that way. And sometimes there aren't corrals. They just let you get in line. And this one, I don't remember signing up for a corral. Maybe I forgot or missed it, but I guarantee you this. I'm going to start at the back of the line. There's a good reason for that, because it's really encouraging to start at the back of the line. You know you're going to pass some people, right? And you know not as many people are going to pass you. It's all about me on that occasion <laughs> when I'm at the back of the line. But on uh, this occasion when Jesus admonishes uh, the disciples, it's, it's not that, right? So I begin the sermon with a question. And I'm going to end with a question. But here's the first question. How do you respond when you're 
at the back of the line. Not because you chose to be there, but because you're put there. What's your internal response? Sometimes what's your external response to being at the back of the line? This story breaks down into three parts. A part that wasn't read that I'll call your attention to, but the first part starts with argumentation. Right? The disciples are walking with Jesus, which is what the disciples frequently do from one place to another, and as they walk with Jesus, imagine it this way. He's kind of out in front, and they're behind, and they're arguing about something. And he sees it, and he notices, and so when they get to Capernaum, he says, hey, fellas, what were you arguing about back there? And their response is, uh, well, their response is, don't want to talk about it. Why? Because they're embarrassed, because they were arguing about who was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Well, no wonder they were embarrassed. Jesus says, let me take an opportunity to tell you something about that. But before we go to that, I I want you to recognize what was going on here. You see, the disciples were not saying, we're a part of a team here. And I'm the best at this, and you're the best at that, and you, Andrew, are the best at something else, and together we can make a best team. If we understand our individual greatness for the purpose of the team, that wasn't the conversation. The conversation is, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And the kingdom of heaven is right here, and we're it. And I think I am. Yeah, no wonder they were embarrassed. I can't help but read this passage and think of a really famous athlete in my time. His name was Muhammad Ali. Remember that? I'm the greatest, right? That was his famous phrase, I'm the greatest. Now, you could say, well, he just knew he was the best And he was, at least for a time, until people like Joe Frazier got to him. But we won't talk about that. I'm the best. I'm the greatest, he said routinely. That was his mantra. But it was more than just his mantra as it related to fighting. There's there's an episode in the life of Muhammad Ali. It's oral tradition, but I think it's true. He was walking across the basketball court, and somebody flipped him a basketball. And Muhammad Ali just launched from way behind the half-court line a ball into midair, and it swished through the basket. And he just kept sauntering right on like nothing happened. And somebody turned to him and said, Ali, did you play basketball? He said, no, I never did it, but if I had, I'd have been the greatest. That's Muhammad Ali, right? That's these disciples. I'm the greatest. And I'm going to argue about who it is. So Jesus says to them, By way of illustration, once the argument is over, he says, I want to tell you about greatness. Here's greatness, and he pulls a child forward. He said, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, you've got to be the servant of everyone. You have to be like these children. Now, routinely, what we think of when we hear that illustration of Jesus is we go to the characteristics of children, and we say, these characteristics of children are representative of the characteristics of those who understand themselves as kingdom children. And if you want to be great in God's kingdom, you have to represent these characteristics. And those characteristics are often something like innocence and humility and kindness and honesty. And you know, all those might be true of children sometimes, but not always. 
If you were a child, you can remember that you weren't always humble and kind and honest. And if you had children, you remember that routinely they did not demonstrate the characteristics that they are often attributed as demonstrating. So even though they may be true of children on any number of occasions, that wasn't the primary point that Jesus was making when he used children. Actually, his primary point was this. They're on the lowest rung of the social ladder. They are people who have absolutely no rights. They are individuals who are routinely ignored by society. And society thinks that that is okay. So if you want to be great in God's kingdom... There's your status. Embrace it. By the way, things have changed, right? And nowadays there's certain things in place that relate to children that we applaud, and rightly so, but they didn't exist, these things, in first century Palestine. There was no such thing as a child labor law prohibiting excessive use of children for labor. They were for labor. And if you didn't labor for your family, and you didn't have a family, chances are you were laboring for somebody else. Or put it more bluntly, you were probably a slave. Children, no, there were no parental rights over children related to abuse and things like that. I mean, you're a child, you've got a parent. No child protective services for you. You could be beat every night. And that was your lot. Accept it. Right? They know this about the status of children. And Jesus says to them, you ignore the children. Everybody ignores the children. They're way down on the food chain. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, embrace the reality that's yours. You're on the lowest part of the food chain. Be humble and serve. That's one thing the children did. Whether they liked it or not, they served. Um, there's another illustration that Jesus uses related to children. Remember that time where Jesus is talking to the disciples again about the theme of greatness in the kingdom of heaven? And it starts out not by a lecture, but it starts out by an episode. Jesus is standing with a whole bunch of people and the disciples are all around him. And people are coming up to him and they're bringing babies to him. You know, kind of like the politician and they're thrusting babies in his face. Except on this occasion, they're wanting more than a kiss. They're wanting a blessing from Jesus. They're wanting their children to be blessed. And the disciples say, whoa, wait a minute, come on. This is overwhelming. That's giving them the benefit of the doubt. They say to the crowd, get those kids out of here. It seems that they're suggesting the kids are not that, that important. Get them away. And Jesus intercepts their rebuke and says to them, I rebuke you. You let those children come to me because they are an image of the kingdom of heaven. Let the kids come to me. You know, every once in a while you'll see uh, things uh, on the news or in a video. YouTube's great because everything goes viral if it's really good. And uh, recently, this week, I saw a video that reminded me... <laughs> of this passage. It um, was a video of some kids and the Pope. 
Did you see any of that? See, they, the Pope had this great big celebration for families at the Vatican, and at the Vatican in that big square, gorgeous place. Been there, it's just, it's a lovely place. People are smashed in there together, celebrating families, and the Pope is up front. There must be 150,000 people there, and well, while it's all happening, here, here's what happens. I got a video, I wanna narrate it for you. Um, there's the Vatican, here's the Pope. And there's a little boy out of nowhere. He wasn't in a receiving line with everybody else. He just showed up. And he looks at the Pope's cross, and he's fascinated, and then he kisses it. And then it seems like he's going to be inauspicious, and he slides around, and then he comes back out again. Now he's looking at the ring and back at the cross. <laughs> don't you love the Pope's reaction? <laughs> I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this kid. Now, here's a dignitary, and the kid is saying, okay, enough adult activity here. We need to focus on what's important. So look what he does. You can't see it very well on that screen, but emerging out of the darkness is a little girl. And he brings the little girl up to the Pope, and he inserts her right into the middle. And then this guy, who's an assistant, tries to bribe him away from the Pope. And he says, are you kidding me? Me and the Pope are tight here. <laughs> and then he's so overwhelmed by being next to the Pope that he wants everybody to know about it. Isn't that great? <laughs> and then he wanders around. The Pope is giving an official address. <laughs> and this kid says to himself, the Pope needs a backup. I'm going to sit in his chair. <laughs> It's like, is that great or what? I got to tell you, when I saw the video, I mean, I don't want to be disrespectful of the Pope, but I'm thinking to myself, the Pope's standing up there and he's thinking, uh, remember the passage in Mark chapter 9, Jesus and the children, you guys be the disciples, I'm going to be Jesus. And the assistants do a great job of it, don't they? Trying to get the kid away. But that, that's an image that came to me when I read that this week. Jesus says, stop it already. The kingdom of heaven looks like one of those. Let them come to me. So they're corrected with an illustration that Jesus gives. And then the second part of this longer passage, which wasn't read, uh, goes like this. In chapter 9 of Mark, The disciples, after they've been given this rebuke with an illustration from Jesus, they try to change the subject. Remember doing that as a kid? Your parents were on to you. They were zeroing in. They were bearing down and you tried to change the subject. It's like me and my brothers. We were masters at that, especially my middle brother. He was a master at that. It's like I look at these disciples. That's my brother Steve right there. He switched the subject on Jesus so he switches the subject this way, whoever it was. He says, they came to Capernaum and all that kind of thing happened about the little children. And then they turned to him. It's like in the middle of the conversation, I got another thing, Jesus. Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Oh, don't stop him, said Jesus. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me for whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth, anyone who gives a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. Fellas, 
Did you forget the illustration I just gave you? Guys, did you hear anything I said? Not only did you switch the subject, but you indicted yourself all over again. You basically said the kingdom is us, Jesus, and nobody else can help us out because it's got to come through us. So we told him to stop. And Jesus said, really? Don't do that. I don't know who the person was. We don't even know if the person was a Christ follower. All we know is that he knew about Jesus and he knew there was power in the name of Jesus, so he used Jesus' name to cast out a demon. That is all we know. Let me make a suggestion. I think this episode is a wonderful passage to illustrate what the Reformed tradition is called common grace. And that's this. God is at work everywhere, not just through Christ followers. And on occasion, Christ followers are so arrogant that they don't see it. They get their nose out of joint and they say, that can't be God. He's not one of us. Jesus basically says the kingdom is way bigger than you think it is. Stop interrupting it. So there's the stories. Now, in this Rediscovering Jesus, we have often asked the question about the story, not just what does it mean, but what does it mean for disciples? And we could ask, what does it mean for these disciples? But we could extend it to what does it mean for us, disciples, Christ followers? First thing I, I see in these stories is, is basically this. Contentiousness and arguing, which, by the way, was routinely characteristic of the disciples. If you read the Gospels, Jesus is always interrupting them when they're in the middle of an argument or when they're in the middle of condemning somebody else for doing something they don't think that person ought to do. Like, for instance, following this passage when that woman just breaks open costly oil and anoints Jesus' feet. What do the disciples do, especially Judas? They rebuke her. I think this story tells us that argument and contentiousness and constantly being that way is routinely a block, a roadblock to wisdom. Why? Because most of the time, my friends, arguments are about me. That's why, oh, we talk about it in righteous terms, but come on, really. Even when you're in the midst of a righteous argument, try to take yourself out of it and see how difficult it is to distract or extract the almighty eye. Routinely in the midst of an argument, I can't see past me. Really, um, if Jesus were to ask you, what were you arguing about last week? Wouldn't you kind of be embarrassed to say what it was? 
Most of the time, I would. Argument and contentiousness routinely blocks the wisdom of God. Second lesson I, I see here is that um, position, and I'll use another passage to illustrate this, position, status, it's not contrary to humility. It ought to be viewed as an opportunity to exercise humility. Remember the passage when Jesus walks into a house with his disciples and turns to the servant's duty, the water basin and the towel of the servant, and puts on the outer garment of a servant with a towel and washes the disciples' feet? Oh, you remember Peter. I love Peter because he can't stop talking. He's always saying something, most of the time inappropriate. And he says, Jesus, you can't do that. You can't wash my feet. And Jesus says, let me tell you something, Pete. You better let me wash your feet. Oh, I, that rhymed. I didn't mean for it to. Listen to me. You, you better let me wash your feet because if you don't let me wash your feet, you got no part in me. And Peter, again, he can't let it rest. He gets all glamorous about it and says, okay, Jesus, wash my whole body then. Love that guy. <laughs> Jesus basically calls him back to center again and says, here's the message, fellas, in case you're not getting it again. You call me Master and Lord, and rightly so. In other words, that is my status. But as your Master and Lord... I will seize the opportunity to exercise humility with my role. I will use my role as master of you and Lord, Lord of the universe. I'm going to take that. And with that, I'm going to wash your feet. Well, by the way, you know what happened shortly after that, right? The master and lord of the universe died for the sins of the world. Jesus says status doesn't in any way block humility. It's an opportunity for it. There's something else, I think, um, that you see in this passage, and it's this. The kingdom of God's enormous. We frequently look at the kingdom of God, and I think we make a, an unhelpful line of demarcation between membership and activity. That is to say, we focus too much on membership, and we don't focus enough on the activity of God. We focus on whether or not we're a part of the kingdom, and whether or not that person out there who's a do-gooder is part of the kingdom, and we don't focus on the activity of God, which is outside the so-called kingdom members, the disciples. That's routinely true of Christians. God has chosen the church to demonstrate his grace. But the church is not the only place where God's grace is demonstrated. God has chosen you to be the wisdom of God, but God does not just use you to demonstrate his wisdom just because you're a Christ follower. God uses all sorts of things 
and all sorts of people. It's called common grace. I want want to quote St. Augustine, who seemed to hone in on this very specifically when he said this. Many whom God has, the church does not have. And many whom the church has, God does not have. God's going to work his will in this world. And routinely, he'll do it with those who don't call themselves Christians. Let's make it more specific. There are unbelieving leaders all over the place who in spite of their unbelief are demonstrating the grace of God and even the wisdom of God. Or let's put it more specifically, the people in political office that you might not have voted for or don't like can routinely be demonstrating the common grace of God in spite of the fact that they're not one of us. Let's put it another way. That could be your boss. That unbelieving boss that you want to say can't have the wisdom of God because he's not a Christian. He may be possessing it in ways you need to recognize. A whole bunch of your students here, so this is for you. And I mean for it to be uncomfortable, my friends, okay? I've been here for 15 years doing my best to serve students in this town. And frequently, I listen to students' stories and I hear the grace of God and incredible arrogance all wrapped into one. Such that some people once they've received forgiveness of sins and the grace of God through Jesus Christ, somehow believe that that unbelieving professor, atheistic professor, can't possibly in any way possess the wisdom of God. That's not true, my friends. Why? Because God is sovereign. And if we know anything about God, according to the scriptures, God takes people who do not even believe in him. And he takes them and manipulates them for the purpose of demonstrating his truth and his grace. He did it routinely with nations and he continues to do it with people. And sometimes those nations and those people, because of his activity, might turn to him. And other times they never do and still... They're an instrument of God's grace, wisdom, and peace. It's called common grace. So the admonition to you is keep your eyes wide open and your ears wide open for the wisdom of grace of God in in other people. Just one more thing, huh? I've also noticed so frequently, it really is troubling, because it feels so, well, so much like me. When people 
find a new understanding of the grace of God. Maybe it's just conversion. Maybe it's the realization that your sins are forgiven through Jesus Christ. Maybe it's the overwhelming presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Maybe it's that you have been completely transformed by God's grace. All of those things can be true. And still, you can find yourself in a position at 19 or 21 or 25 or older of condemning and being condescending toward your parents because they don't really believe. How could they be right? Where's the wisdom of God in their counsel? Be careful. First of all, God calls you to respect your parents, and second, he calls you to find his grace and his truth everywhere. And it might be in the words and in the activity of an unbelieving parent. It's common grace. So, uh, those are points of application for disciples. I promised that I would end with a question. My first question was, what's your response when you find yourself at the back of the line? Not because you chose it, but because it was assigned to you. My second question is this. What does your life resume look like? I'm not talking about your professional resume. We're supposed to update that all the time, right? Keep it current so whenever you get fired or you have to move on, you have an updated resume. I hope you've done that. I haven't, so don't get rid of me. I don't have an updated resume. But, but you're supposed to, right? If you're updating your resume, I mean right now, and it's not just for work, it's for life. What's it look like? Would your resume say that you're active in the service to self? or active in service to others? Would your resume say that you're active in service to others conditioned upon the other's response? You know, perhaps the best judgment of what is service and what is not might be that service waiting for a positive response, conditioned upon a positive response, isn't service. Service is in spite of a positive response. Service doesn't ask the question, what can I get out of this? It doesn't ask the question whether or not my service is appreciated. True service doesn't ask the question, how do they treat me? And if they don't treat me nice, I'm not going to serve them. It's quite the opposite, my friends. The biblical notion of service is the suffering servant, Jesus, for the sake of the other, no matter what. Not contingent upon their response. As a matter of fact, your service may produce hatred in them. Do you still serve? There's a great commandment in the Gospels, and it goes like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. And frequently what we do with that commandment is we say, here's two parts. Love the Lord your God with all your heart 
And once you're done with that, love your neighbor as yourself. I want to suggest that they're linked. I want to suggest that what Jesus was saying is they go together. In order to love your neighbor as yourself, you need to love God with all your heart. And in loving God with all your heart, truly all your heart and soul and mind, you will not be able to do anything other than to love your neighbor as yourself because you will be overwhelmed, overwhelmed by the grace of God. And when you're not overwhelmed by the grace of God, you're selfish. And I know that feeling just like you do. Some time ago, um, a, a sweet lady who was very advanced in years uh, passed away. And I was preparing for her funeral. And as I usually do, I get the family together and ask them to share stories, especially if I haven't known the deceased for very long. And I, I, I knew this woman, and I knew who she was and what she was like, but the testimonies uh, of her sweet disposition were all over the place in the family's stories. And by the way, if you want an honest assessment of who people are, just go to a funeral sometime. Uh, I've seen some of the worst, most contentious fights uh, preparing for funerals. Real life emerges. On this occasion, what emerged was the story of a woman who was full of grace and peace. And her daughter told me, she said, when my mom um, discovered that my dad was so ill that he had to be cared for 24-7 night and day, she was well enough to do it. And she refused to turn him over to anybody else. And she served him hand and foot night and day. And then her daughter said, and my dad was not a nice man, Pastor. She said he, he was really kind of a mean person. And on one occasion after she said, I watched my mother serve him, I called her aside and I said, Mom, how can you keep that up? Because even in his frailty, he was mean. And the daughter said, she said to me, honey, I'm not doing this for him. I'm doing it for Jesus. Now, you could see that two ways, right? Let's be honest. You could look at it and say, oh, she didn't really like him at all. She was just doing out her duty to Jesus. But I know her well enough to know that that's not a good interpretation of the statement. A better interpretation of the statement was this. I know he doesn't love me like he should. He never has. But I love Jesus so much. I'm going to love him like Jesus has loved me. There's the kingdom of God. There's the way to follow. High order, but it's a lofty goal. And God will help you. Let's pray. Lord, you've demonstrated your grace uh, to us in so many ways, uh, through the stories of Scripture, uh, through people that sit right next to us, through grief that we've passed through, through the lessons that we've learned in life, 
And we thank you, Lord, for all the grace uh, you've given to us. We pray that this week, as we continue to follow you, you will give us the strength to distribute the grace that we've received because we've received more than our share and it's our responsibility when we understand the depth of that grace and when we love you completely to demonstrate that grace to the world. We pray, Lord, that you will uh, give us the insight to realize that there are people who are outside our circle who actually demonstrate the grace and the wisdom of God. Keep our eyes open to that fact, Lord. Help us, Lord, to remind ourselves that a contentious spirit of arguing and that sort of thing actually sometimes blocks the very wisdom of God that could come to us. We pray you will help us to move away from self and, and move towards you. And we thank you, Lord, for your grace that's been demonstrated in Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray that that will be the kind of grace that we demonstrate to others as we walk with you. And we'll thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen.